All God's people said. As far as I'm concerned, we could just pray and go home. Because we just uh, we just preached it out loud as we as we sang it. That that's what it's all about. Um, I can never remember the words then right after I sing them. He shall return in robes of white, the blazing sun shall pierce the night. And I and we, all of us who know Jesus, will rise among the saints. My gaze transfixed, our gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Um, There is nothing greater in all of the universe than God himself. Amen? He, He is the treasure. So Father, we just, we thank you so much for calling us to this. We thank you for the privilege of being able to sing. Um, We do it every week, and Lord, I'm sure that many of us do it throughout the week, maybe in our cars or as we're listening to music on our headphones or whatever, but uh, (laughs) I don't know, Lord, I don't think any of us know how often we have sung your praises, either by ourselves or together, but Father... I just want to say that it never, it never gets old. It never gets old. Ever. And I thank you that you made us for this. There's just, there's nothing else that I would rather do. There's nowhere else I would rather be right now than with your people um, in your presence. Thank you for loving us. Please speak to our hearts this morning and change us. Uh, as you open the eyes of our heart to see you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Got your Bibles? Go to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. First 12 verses we just finished up. First Thessalonians. And so on to Second Thessalonians. Uh, let me just jump in and read so we can get going here, because it's, it's quite a bit to cover, actually. It's only 12 verses, which isn't a ton, uh, yet there's a lot in here, and we'll try to work our way through most of it, looking at the big ideas, at least, of what's there this morning. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power 
so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, please now open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. Um, We thank you for the gift of your word to us this morning. We pray that it would instruct us and that it would mold us and shape us um, and help us not to be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing here in 2 Thessalonians, um, and it's another one of Paul's letter to the church in the city called Thessalonica, uh, which is in uh, modern-day Greece, kind of on the seaport. Uh, The city still exists. It's called something else. Uh, but once again, I forget what the name of it is uh, today. It's not called Thessalonica anymore, but this city, city uh, still exists. Um, Paul, as we went through First Thessalonians, I told you guys this, we, uh, or he was there very briefly, and then he got run out of town because of difficulty and persecution, um, and then he wrote back to see how the church was doing. Um, he answered some questions that they have, and now, a few months after he wrote that letter, he writes this letter. Again, so it's all still within a very short amount of time that he writes both these letters very early on or or very close in proximity to the time that he was actually in the city. Um, And he's writing back and uh, just discipling them, caring for them. Again, um, if you guys were here for the messages that we did through 1 Thessalonians, uh, this, this church was just very, very, very dear to Paul. Uh, He cared for them. Uh, On one level, they were babes in Christ, and yet they were bearing amazing fruit uh, to the glory of God. And there was suffering that was happening almost immediately. Again, Paul was run out of town when he was there uh, for just a few weeks um, because of persecution. And so there was suffering that was happening immediately. But now in 2 Thessalonians, we see that the suffering is continuing. And this may seem simple, but I, I would just say it like this, is that it's one thing for suffering to happen, initially, but it's another thing for suffering and difficulty to continue on. Do you know what I mean? Like it's one thing for something to be hard just in a moment or for a day or for a week, but it's another thing when something is hard or difficult for a couple months or a couple years. It's one thing to hear you've got cancer, extremely difficult. It's another thing to hear, hey, the cancer is back. It's one thing to, you know, uh, have a bad week of marriage but it's another thing to have several rough years of marriage. It's one thing to be dealing with uh, kind of a wayward child in just a season. It's another thing to be dealing with uh, a wayward child for several years, okay? And I know that the difficulty that they're facing is one of overt persecution, but I'm gonna argue this morning that what Paul does here to encourage their hearts applies to each and every single one of us, no matter what the difficulty is that we may be facing, and not just facing maybe initially, but facing in an, on, in an ongoing way. Um, one of the things that uh, we're passionate about here at Mercy Hill is trying to show you and show ourselves every week, no matter, not just here on Sunday mornings, but in small church, um, any sort of uh, E2 course that we do, we're trying to show you that theology matters. Okay, theology really, really matters. And if I could just carry that thought out a little bit more, I would say theology especially matters because suffering is going to matter. Uh, or I'm sorry, suffering happens and theology matters especially in the midst of suffering. Okay, um, theology might just seem like something that's just there to make us sound like we're smart uh, or sound like we've read the Bible or sound like we know some fancy theological terms but that is not the point. It's not the point of all. 
at all. Theology is there to uphold us and to undergird us um, and to give us a rock to stand on in the midst of difficulty. And that's what we see the Apostle Paul doing here this morning is he gives them these reminders about what is true so that they can have endurance in the midst of great difficulty, okay? And so I want to kind of come in and out of this from a couple different ways this morning, or kind of two applications. One is that if you're here this morning and it's a difficult season, and maybe it's not even just a difficult season just initially, or it's only been a day or a week or a couple weeks or a month, but it's been a difficult season in a certain area of your your life for a long time. There are truths here that Paul is going to share with us this morning that I believe can encourage our hearts and can strengthen us. However, if you're in a season right now, and and I'm sure that all of us have difficulty or or suffering in different areas of our life in some measure, um, but if you're in a season of your life right now where things are going relatively well, relatively well, I would just say this, is that Paul gives us some very practical instruction on how to encourage other people. And some things that are just true, some theology uh, that is true, that undergirds um, our lives that at times feel like they're being tossed to and fro and here and there. And so I just want to work through these things. I'm going to say that there's four of them. I've tried to sum them up kind of four in four reasons, four reasons why we can have hope in the midst of suffering, four reminders that Paul gives the Thessalonian church uh, and also very directly apply to us no matter what we're going through. First of all, um, Paul reminds them of their unshakable status as the children of God. He reminds them of their unshakable status as the children of God. It's just a greeting, yet it's a unique greeting. And if you read the Bible carefully, this is a little bit unique. Only here in verses 1 and 2 of the opening of this letter does Paul uh, speak of the Father two times um, in this way. Again, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, in God our Father. This is the only place that Paul uses this phrase, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, in his, in his opening. In verse 2, this is quite the common opening. In fact, almost all of Paul's letters start with this. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But only here do you have these two put together, that he speaks of the grace of our Lord Je- from our God, from, God, from our God and Father, but also that we are the church, or the Thessalonians were the church that we're in God their Father. So if you look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul only mentions one of them. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he just says, grace and peace to you, or grace to you and peace. But here he mentions the Father twice. And that's why I say that Paul is, is pushing here, I believe, even from the outset and reminding them of their unshakable status as the children of God, that God is our Father. And this little phrase, and we've talked about this over the summer when we did our doctrinal series talking about what it means to be united to Christ. And again, he does say here that they're in God the Father and it would be and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's both. But I think that he's especially emphasizing here the Father is that we are united to the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, that the essence of our salvation is that we are united to him. Redemption, forgiveness, adoption, reconciliation, wholeness, justification, sanctification, they are found in Christ and in God our Father. We are his children and that does not change. One of the things that you will never hear in Islam is that we are found in Allah or we're not found in Buddha 
or in some sort of um, uh, some sort of philosophical belief that the world might hold. But the essence of our salvation is that we are united to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we're united to him, Paul says, and again, this is in all his letters, he starts in this way. He says, grace to you. And I just want to point out here that it's not really a request as much as it is a declaration. Because we are united to the Father, because of what Jesus Christ has done, he doesn't just request it, he declares it. He says, grace to you. Why? Because it's always abundant in the Father. And I want to tell you this morning, the reason that's good news is because no matter what situation you face, I promise you, in God the Father, there is grace for that. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I don't care about your feelings. I mean, I care about your feelings, but I don't care what you feel. Your feelings do not determine what is true. What is true is what this word says. And if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been united to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That is your status this morning. It is unshakable. It will not change. And that's, and that's really, really good news. Um, our union with the Father and our, and, as our, and our status as his children is not founded upon our feelings, but on, our, on the perfect work of Christ on the cross. And it is common for all believers throughout all ages to feel at times like that is shaken. But brothers and sisters, it does not change. It does not change. Even David, who wrote so much of the Bible and so many of the Psalms, he felt this at times. But again, his feelings were not the determining factor of what is true. Psalm 13, he says, how long, O Lord? And can we just praise the Lord for just the honesty here? Again, this is not what's true, but listen to his feelings. And how many of us have felt this? How long, O Lord? Question mark. Will you forget me forever? David wasn't just suffering for a little bit, but the suffering was ongoing. And he's being honest and crying out to God. He said, are you going to forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Have you ever felt like that? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have my sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He says, consider and answer me. O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies shall say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And again, as I prayed and just mentioned a little bit ago in the opening about the importance of singing, that this is what we were made to do, David ends Psalm 13 like this. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. See, that's why I'm important. Like, like we're not being hypocrites. Like, you might have brought some really heavy stuff in here this morning. I'm certain of it. And yet, when we stand and we sing, don't let the enemy condemn you, telling you that as you're singing those words, even though you're feeling way down, that you can't sing that because you don't really believe it. No, 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 no. There's going to be a lot of times where we don't feel like it, but we say it anyway because what we're singing is true. That's the truth. Not what we're feeling. Not what we brought in here. Yeah, it might seem like the reality right now, but there's a better day coming. 
Because Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, I shared this with you guys, I believe it was back in June, when we were speaking about um, the doctrinal topic of God as Father. Uh, but this is question 27 and 28 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, and I know I shared it with you just a couple months ago, but we all need to remind it of it, and I'm sure you've forgotten it because I know I had. But this is so good. He says, what do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The next question, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Answer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence that in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. And this is true for you this morning if you have trusted Christ. In Christ, we have an unshakable status as his children. The second thing that Paul reminds them of to encourage their hearts in the midst of difficulty. Um, he reminds them of the unchanging nature of God's will for their life. The unchanging nature of God's will for their life. Namely, that what God wants for us is to be ever-increasing in faith and love. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you, <coughs> excuse me, for one another is increasing. Verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness of faith in all your persecutions and in the, in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, this was actually, if you remember back in 1 Thessalonians, this is where it's, it's neat how the, how the Bible works together, but remember that prayer that Paul prayed for the Thessalonian church at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He prayed, he said, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we do for you. Now, here several months later, he's writing them this letter, and he's saying, this is happening. This is happening among you. This is that God is answering Paul's prayer, that their faith is growing abundantly, and love for each other was increasing and growing. And again, I say that this is, this is good news and Paul's reminding them of this is because so many times in the midst of difficulty, we begin to run around, or at least I do, okay? I'll say for me, this is definitely me. When things get hard, I begin to run around like a chicken with my head cut off. And I begin to go and, and just, and I, and I can start freaking out and I can start asking all these questions about, you know, what's God's will for my life? And, and here's, here's my tendency, and this is probably a little bit more the way I'm wired personality-wise. Um, uh, I, I can, in, in a very real way, too, you guys can be thankful for Conrad and Matt and the other elders. is because when things get hard, you know what I want to do? I just want to change everything. I just want to switch stuff up. And I don't know if you do that at all in your personal life. Yeah, maybe some of you do, but I also, if it wasn't for Conrad and Matt, I probably would have done it with the church. We just crumbled it all up and started all over several times. Just because when things get hard, I begin to try to mess with everything. Because, and it's, again, if you really want to do a psychological analysis of me here, it's because, um, it's because I'm a control freak. 
and I'm trying to switch things up and, and keep things moving. But in, in the end, the reason this is good news is what does God want from us in any situation, no matter if it's good or difficult? He wants that vertical relationship of faith to be abounding and to be growing. In other words, Eric, just trust me, he says. And what does he want from me on the horizontal plane? He just wants me to love the person that's right in front of me. And when things are difficult, when, when you feel like you're up to your neck in pain or difficulty, that, that it, it becomes so overwhelming that it, it just feels at times like you don't know anything about anything, right? And again, Paul's reminding him here, and I, I believe this is why this is good news, is that, listen, from beginning to end, it's all about trusting him, and it's all about just loving people. And I believe it was Eugene Peterson that said that the Christian life, he described it this way, I love this little phrase, the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience in the same direction. What is God's will for your life today? It's that you trust him, and it's that you love the person that's in front of you. Whether it be your spouse, your child, your neighbor, your coworker, your boss, or somebody that is your enemy and somebody that you don't know. What is going to be his will for you 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? I can tell you that you trust him and that you love the person that's right in front of you. <clears throat> and again, going back to the fact that, again, Paul had prayed this for them. We talked about this a couple weeks ago about the importance of looking away from ourselves when we want to change and looking to God who can do the work in our hearts. If we want uh, our faith to grow and our love to increase, then we need to look away from ourselves and towards the God who can change our hearts, which is the spring from which faith and love uh, flow. And again, I don't know that the Thessalonian church here was, I don't know that they realized that they were being an example to others in the midst of this. Again, don't miss this. This is God's will for them that, and for us that we increase in faith and increase in, in love. But Paul says to them by way of encouragement, he says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you. So they were in the midst of difficulty. But Paul's saying, I know it's hard, guys. But God is using you right now where you're at as you continue just to cling to him. And just to trust him. And just to believe him. And just to love the person that's in front of you. I'll tell you what, the, I, I, I still struggle with it. Because I still struggle with pride. And at times think it's all about me. But the thing that God continues to, I, I, I think, I hope, <laughs> weed out of me over time. Or at least I know he's constantly working on it in me. As a disciple, as, as I walk with him is that I so used to think early on that um, what God wanted for me was to like go out and change the world, get everybody saved, share the gospel with everybody. And again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. and you know, we, should, we should do that, but go to city after city and country after country and you know, these big grandiose things of what I thought God wanted me to do for him, which is frightening because we can't do anything for him but instead what I've come to realize is that again what he wants from us in every season and the times that he uses us most effectively is when in the midst of difficulty we have simple faith in him and a pure selfless love for others 
That's it. And I don't think the Thessalonians realized that they were being used by God in the midst of their trouble to be an encouragement to other churches to the place where Paul was boasting about them. And it's so true that many times um, God is using us most effectively when we're in the midst of our greatest difficulty and we're completely unaware of it. Friday morning I had an individual, um, and I need to be very kind of vague with this, but I had an individual stop in at the office, doesn't attend the church, um, but that I know, and uh, has been separated from their spouse for several years. And we touch base every now and then. And it's just a, it's a burden. It's a constant burden uh, in their life and a longing for there to be some reconciliation. And they stopped in. They sat down the chair across from my desk. And they said, I just, I just need some encouragement this morning. And I tried as best I could to encourage this individual. But I promise you, I promise you, and I told them this, they have no idea how much they encouraged me. Because in the midst of this ongoing difficulty that they've been in for quite some time, they were displaying in the midst of brokenness and tears a simple faith, a trust in their father, and a love for just the next person that they were going to come in contact with. And it so ministered to my heart. And so please, like if you're in the midst of a difficult time this morning, don't, don't think that you got to go out there and go on some missions trip or do some sort of evangelistic crusade. I mean, maybe if that's what God's calling you to do. I'm for it all. I mean, that's fine. Keep your eyes on him and keep loving the next person that comes in contact with you. The third way that Paul encourages their hearts in the midst of ongoing suffering and we'll spend probably the most time on this because Paul spends the most time on this thought here in the next several verses, uh, is he reminds them of the undeniable reality of God's justice. He d- reminds them of the undeniable reality of God's justice. Uh, if you were going to ask the question of this text, like just simply, what does this say about God? We're doing an E2 course right now on Wednesday nights, and um, we give people different lists of questions to ask, interpretive questions, and different things. And one good question to ask of any text is just simply, how is God described in this text? Well, we've already looked at God as described as Father. That's important. But I think another big piece that you would have to put down if you were answering that question, just kind of studying this text on your own, is that God is seen as a righteous judge. God is seen as a righteous judge. Look in verse 5 here. Um, he says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. Now, there, there are three um, aspects of God's righteous judgment in this text. I'm going to take them in, from the order of kind of like the most obvious to maybe one that's a little bit more veiled. But let me talk about them briefly. First of all, um, God's righteousness is going to be displayed in repaying the wicked. This is probably uh, what most of us think of like when we talk about God as judge, this might be what comes to mind, is that God is going to repay the wicked. In verse 6, again, he says, since indeed God considers it just, right, 
to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The suffering that the Thessalonians were going through, it was multifaceted, but the source of it was is that Satan was at work and there was real persecution and affliction happening. Okay, maybe people that they knew and loved, maybe family members, maybe themselves, maybe they'd been arrested, maybe they had been publicly shamed. I'm, for, I'm certain that they had been slandered, mistreated, um, maybe beaten. It was, it was very real. And Paul says here is that, yes, God's allowing this to happen. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But there's going to be a day where God repays, and that's the word he uses there, it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And again, Paul gives this as an encouragement. Again, sometimes we, we think that as Christians, I, I think we think we, we're not allowed to long for repayment of evil. That's not true. Now, until with, well, let me be clear here. With our dying breath, even our enemies, we are to love them. We're to completely love them to the end, okay? That's, that's our role. And the reason that's our role is because it's God's role to be the judge. God is going to repay. Our job is to, is to love them to the end. And in fact, Paul would have fallen into this category, would he not? Like you read his story in the book of Acts, he was going around arresting Christians. He uh, 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 condoned the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, Okay? Yet, Paul wants them to know here that in the end, no one is going to get away with anything. Do you know that? The evil that has been done to you, possibly by someone else, I want to be honest with you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, even though you may not feel like it, again, folks, we can't be led by feelings but by faith, but as a disciple of Jesus Christ, um, uh, you need to pray for that person and you need to ask God to help you forgive them. And again, I know you can't do that on your own. We need his help to do that. Only the gospel can do that. I understand that that's difficult. But as a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's, we, we have to ask God to be at work in our heart. But even if that person never comes to know Christ, even if they never change, in the end, there will be justice. Because God is going to repay them. It's a terrifying thing. Terrifying. Secondly, not only is he going to repay those who afflict the people of God, but he is going to relieve his people. If you look at the next line there, again, verse 6, he finds it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. He said he's going to repay the wicked and he's going to relieve his people. Um. He goes on here and then he, he, he goes back and forth and he describes those two ideas in more detail. Let's look at it briefly as we just simply read on in the next uh, couple lines here. He says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. So there's more detail to like, what is this repayment going to be like? Oh, it's going to be serious. It's going to be very serious. I mean, you can describe it a lot of different ways. Serious is probably a little bit of an understatement, but it's at least that, right? When he comes from heaven, so he tells us when this is going to happen, maybe not now in our life, but one day, he's going to come from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God 
and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice there that, that little phrase, obedience to the gospel, who do not obey the gospel. The gospel is not a suggestion. It's not just a good idea. It's not just an option. It is a command. Here's the command. Repent and believe. It's not a suggestion. He commands all people everywhere to repent and to believe in him. Because he has sent his son and made an offering for sin and he commands people everywhere to bow the knee to Jesus. That's what repentance and faith is. It's bowing the knee and giving allegiance to Jesus and asking his forgiveness for your sins. But he goes on in verse nine, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And now he's going to describe this type of relief that we're going to get briefly, verse 10. When he comes on that day to be what? To be glorified in his saints. Now again, um, I know we talked about eschatology last week. It seems though that this is both happening at the same time. He comes back. We find relief. We find rescue. We are going to be the ones, uh, again, a little farther on in verse 10, who will be marveling at him, who will be in awe of him, and others will be experiencing destruction if they do not know him. He is a just and righteous judge. And I, and I pray that you'd be able to receive that this morning and that it would help you in the midst of difficulty because maybe specifically the difficulty that you're facing in this season is because of the injustice that other people have done towards you. And I would just say truly, I truly mean this, I'm sorry. I really am. God has not turned a blind eye to it. But you have got to, and again, I'm saying this with fear and trembling and not trying to be overly simplistic, but brother and sister, whatever wrong has been done to you, you've got to lay that at his feet. You cannot carry that. Because he's the judge, we're not. We're just not. We are those who once deserved his judgment. We did deserve his judgment. But our judgment was placed on Christ. This is the gospel. Uh, Derek, can I get that picture of uh, those two guys, that first one I gave you? Does, does anybody know who this is? If you were born after the year 1995, you probably don't. But this was for me. So whenever I think of a courtroom or of a trial, this is who I think of. For those of you who don't know, that is Judge Lance Ito, uh, he was the judge that presided over the O.J. Simpson trial back in the 90s. And that is uh, one of the key witnesses in the trial on the left there. His name was Cato Kalin. So for those of you who don't know, this was before social media. Um, but, you know, so you just, you, you had some of your basic channels, you know, and stuff. But th this dominated the news cycle for the better part of a year. Okay, everything was about the O.J. Simpson trial. Does anybody remember this? Yeah, Okay. I mean, this just, this, it was called the trial of the century. Again, this is, in my mind, I was in like seventh, eighth grade, I think, when this happened. Um, it's just always what I think of when I think uh, of, of a courtroom and a trial. And it, it just turned into this show, okay? So, uh, again, I don't know anybody's heart, like, but one of the, like, Cato Kalin there on the left, he was this aspiring actor in Hollywood. I think he was also a, a radio personality. He supposedly had been a witness to something, you know, that had done, but nobody, like he would just, it just became this kind of clown show. And, and he would, you know, say different things. And then you had Judge Lance Ito, who was trying to 
decipher through all of the kind of some true testimony, some fake testimony from these witnesses that just wanted popularity, that just wanted to get their, their face in the limelight is really what was going on. I mean, everybody out of this trial ended up getting a book deal, right? Or some sort of like made-for-TV movie, little miniseries or something. Everybody got their 15 minutes of fame out of this. And that's kind of what seemed to be going on. But, but Judge Ito would kind of, you know, sift through and he'd, he'd have to like, you know, try to figure out if these guys were really telling the truth or if they weren't. And I'm not even sure what, I mean, Judge Ito got his own book deal out of the thing. You know, it's just everybody's motives were kind of wonky and weird is the point. You can take that down. Um, but I say all that because when we speak of God as judge, he, here's what I'm saying. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to need to hear from any witnesses. He's not going to need to examine evidence. He's not going to need to hear testimony from some sort of forensic expert. Because he knows every detail of every life perfectly. We will stand before him and give account. Um, there's another aspect of justice here that I want to touch on briefly, although maybe not briefly because it's a really big idea and an important one. But this third dynamic to God's justice, and we kind of skipped over it, but look back at the beginning of verse 5. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, and again, look carefully at the language, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, beginning of verse 5, it says this, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What? What, what, what does the this refer to? It refers to the persecutions and the afflictions that he just described in the, previ in the, in the pre previous verse. So now here's what he's saying. He's saying that the affliction and the persecution that they are going through, it is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now that, if you wrestle with that verse and wrestle with the language, it should create a tension because it almost sounds like Paul is saying that God is somehow punishing them through persecution and affliction, but that's not what it means. What he's saying here is that this has nothing to do with punishment, but that the affliction and the persecution that they're going through has nothing to do with punishment, but everything to do with purification. Is that God is making them holy through suffering. Brothers and sisters, throughout history, the people of the kingdom of God, the citizens of the kingdom of God, have been purified through suffering and through difficulty. Whether it be overt persecution of people literally stoning you, arresting you, slandering you, but suffering of any kind, suffering of any kind for the people of God, it is the furnace through which God makes us holy. And we cannot get around this. And the Bible talks about it in several different places. It talks about it over and over and over, how as the people of God, we need to lean into this idea. And when difficulty comes, no matter what the type of difficulty, that we need to lean into it as something that, again, as I read earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism, that has somehow, in some way, even though we would prefer it not to be there, it has come to us by God's fatherly hand. And that he's doing something in the midst of it. Again, Acts chapter 5. Let me give you a bunch of Bible for this quickly. Just hang on tight here. I'm going to read a lot and I'm going to read fast. Acts chapter 5 says, When they, being the apostles, 
had been beaten. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Is that the people of God throughout history have, suffer, have counted it as a privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, uh, I beg you that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but that you should also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Did you catch that? He said that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, not only should you believe in him, but that you should also suffer for him. That this is granted to us as a gift. Yes, a gift we would probably rather not receive, but God is doing something in it. Paul says later on in Philippians chapter 3, very famous passage, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then in verse 10, he says this, listen carefully, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, that I might become like him, even in in his death. What is one of the things that God is doing when difficulty comes? He's making us like Jesus, because Jesus was the man of sorrows. He suffered greatly, and so his people are also going to suffer, sufferings of various kinds. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. Romans chapter 8 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You did not receive the Spirit to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. One of the pictures that's used throughout the scripture. Here Paul is just speaking this forward in very uh, uh, kind of abstract terms that we, it's, it, the Bible teaches that we have to suffer with Christ. One of the images that the Bible uses in several different places is that when we suffer, that God is preparing us and actually making us beautiful. It's like the, the imagery of being given clothes to wear. Okay, in Revelation chapter 19, listen, listen closely. <clears throat> he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, listen, his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Wedding dress, bright and pure. What is the fine linen? Next line answers it. For the fine linen, the wedding dress, is the righteous deeds of the saints, but primarily righteous deeds that are done, righteous deeds of faith and of love that are done in the midst of suffering and difficulty. In Revelation chapter 7, okay, listen, he says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where do they come? 
I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Listen, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So yes, it is by grace through faith in Christ alone. It is his blood that washes us clean. But notice what he said there. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? They've come out of the great tribulation. Suffering. There's going to be a day when God wipes away every tear from our eye, but right now, what he's doing in this life in the midst of difficulty is he's making us prepared for an event for which we, we did not have anything to wear. Have you ever been invited to a form? Uh, listen, I, I had to buy a suit because as a pastor, I have to do weddings and funerals, and I can't show up in sweatpants, which I would prefer, but I won't do that to you. But you know, I... When I first you know, started doing a lot of those things, it's like I had to go buy a suit. Why? Because I had nothing to wear. I want you to think about the magnitude and the honor and the privilege of when Jesus comes back. Think about Hebrews chapter 11 and all the saints throughout history. And again, you read the end of Hebrews chapter 11, we don't have time uh, fully to, to go there, but it talks about people who gave up their homes, who quenched the mouths of lions, and who went into the fire like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And some, it says, and again, this is a little gruesome, but this is what it says, some for their faith, because they would not recant, they were sawn in two. And they went about destitute and homeless, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And we, one day, when Jesus comes back, we're going to be gathered at this unbelievable event. We're going to be with him, and, and people like that are going to be telling their stories. Stories about not just what they did, but how, just like we read from David, there were times where just like David and so many others, they, they were afraid. And it was hard. And they prayed like David did. God, how long are you going to forsake me? Where are you at? But they're going to have stories about how God saw them through. Do you understand? And we do not want to be there. We do not want to be at that event and be there without our own stories to tell. And so God is giving us beautiful clothing to wear. Do you understand? In the midst of what he's doing in your life right now that's difficult and you don't have an answer to, yet, there is an answer. And because he's faithful and he never fails, he's going to work it out. And what he's doing is he's making you beautiful. He's giving you stories of his faithfulness to clothe yourself in. That that day, when, as we sang earlier, when we are gathered among the saints, we too are going to have our stories to tell. Not about us, but about him. And how he was faithful. Amen? So that, that's, what he's, that's what he's doing. On some, I don't know the specifics of how it's going to work out or what you're going through, but that's what he's doing. Lastly, and I'll, we'll make this one quick, Okay? The fourth way that Paul encourages them in the midst of difficulty is he reminds them of the unending supply of God's power. That there's an unending supply of God's power, and this is a prayer that he prays for them here in verses 11 and 12. He says, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Again, so Paul is now praying the same thing that he knows God is already doing. Back in verse 5, that we might be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, that he's purifying us in the midst of difficulty. Paul's saying, we're praying in light of this. 
that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith, listen, by his power, by his power, is that Paul is praying here that in the midst of their suffering and difficulty, and again, somehow, on some level, all God always wants for us is to trust him and to love the people that are right in front of us in that moment, is that Paul's praying is they just do what they can do, that God would then do what only he can do. Every resolve, I love that little phrase, every resolve for good. Every resolve for good. Is we have things in our hearts that, 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 are, that are good. And it's a, they're works of faith. We do them in faith. That God would um, take our simple little loaves and fishes, just like the little boy who brought his loaves and fishes to Jesus, that he would take them and that he would multiply them. And he would do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. And this works itself out in a million different ways. This was, I thought about this yesterday. Can I get that first picture up there, Derek, of the fire yesterday, the, the work day out at Mercy Hill West? Thank you guys so much for all of you that showed up. Like, everybody was so encouraged. We had such an awesome turnout, and we got so much done. So much done. It was awesome. Um, I can tell many of you were in prayer because the guy with the back turned, that's Paul Norker, and he was running a chainsaw, and nobody lost any limbs or anything like that, so... You know, that, that's good. Um, no, but we, we, took down, we took down a couple trees uh, and some different things. Go back to the other one first, Derek. And so we were here. The, the first part is like we took down these trees, and then there were times where people were, you know, we'd just carry the branches. And just you'd get what you could, and we'd take them over there one by one. But then, now you can go to the next one now. But then Justin came along in this bad boy. Ho, 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 yes. And uh, this thing here could grab a whole tree. And so there were our little efforts to pick up branches, but then Justin would come with this greater power, grab a whole pine tree, throw it on the fire, and do what took, would take 20 guys to do in a while. He would do it, he would do it in an instant. This is a picture of what God is praying here for the Thessalonians. Is that in our resolves for good, in the midst of difficulty, our simple resolves just to trust him and to love the people that are in front of us. And this, this looks like taking a meal to someone who's sick. But not just to fill their stomach, but to let them know that God would let them know through that simple resolve for good, that simple act, how much he loves them. It looks like with your own broken words and maybe not always saying everything perfectly and stuttering at times, just taking your efforts to try to share the gospel with somebody, but trusting that God is going to take those words and use them powerfully in their life to transform their hearts. Honestly, this prayer is, it's kind of what I pray every week to get up here to preach. I'm like, Lord, I, you know, I got some ideas. I got, you know, I'm gonna try to make sense of this passage. I just wanna try to, try to be clear, but I'm praying, God, take my imperfect words and use them by your power to change people's lives. It's cutting down some trees and cleaning up a property 
as superficial as that is. But why? For the sake of the gospel that people might see it and might be attracted and might come and might hear the gospel and that God would change them. Love that prayer. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm praying this for you guys. In the midst of your hardship, that God would continue to be at work because even, when, again, when we feel weak, we, uh, our power wanes. Maybe at the work day yesterday, 7.30, got your coffee, got your donut, whoo, let's go, but a couple hours in, you're just kind of shutting down. But do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and even young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. Here's what I want to ask you to do this morning if you want to, okay? The choice is yours. But I would say this. It doesn't depend on your feelings. It depends on the grace of God which is available to you in Christ and in God our Father. And it depends on an act of your will. That right now, whether you feel like it or not, I want to ask you, and actually, I would ask you, especially if you don't feel like it, but I want to ask you, by an act of your will, whether you feel like it or not, I want you just to confess that Jesus loves you, that God is your Father, and that you're His child, and that maybe you feel like He's turned His back on you, but I want you to confess that that's not true, because it's not. The Word of God makes it clear. Secondly, I want you to confess that even though you might feel weak and even though you might not be aware of it, you might feel like you don't have anything to give, I want you to confess that God is still using you. If you know Jesus as your Savior, he's always using us and he's always preparing us. And again, he's using us. It's not us. There's no glory to us. It's all to him. But I want you to confess that 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 is true. Third thing I want to ask you to confess is that even though things might seem very messy right now and very difficult, I want to ask you just to confess right where you sit that even even though you might not see it, that God is making you beautiful. That's what he's doing. He's giving you a wedding dress to wear. And then lastly, I just want you to believe and confess that his power is still available. He's for you. And I want to pray that for you as we close right now. Father, I pray for us collectively, but I also pray for us individually. I pray, Lord, that you would fulfill every resolve for good that is represented here in this room and every work of faith by your power so that your name, not ours, 
might be glorified according to the grace of our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys stand with me.